0: Well, Zohar, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Well, How are you? Doing good. Thank you so much for taking the time to hop on today. I, I really appreciate it. Um, do you mind giving us a bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? The short bio is that I'm a
1: rabbi, an independent scholar, and a poet, uh, I and a coach. Uh, I do all this as a self-employed, uh, roving intellectual on the internet. Uh, teaching in person and over Zoom, and uh, I'm I'm passionate about uh, art. I'm passionate about spirituality and faith and theology. I'm passionate about the history of ideas, and of course, um, how all of those very ab- abstract um, and and monumental issues touch the individual uh, in this cultural moment, and how we personalize the great ideas by
0: really bringing them back to the question of how should we live? Got it. Got it. I, I'm curious, I want to zoom in like, uh, and I'm going to go off the outline, so I apologize, but uh, you just said something that's really interesting. Um, the individual, you know, the world seems to have gotten very collective, you know, in some sense and less focused on the individual in the past. I don't know, you know, 50 years it. At least to me, like I have that feeling. I I remember Peter Thiel has this line recently where he says, There hasn't been a ticker tape parade for an individual since you know the late 1990s, and even then, it was a couple of like um athletes and people that were not necessarily even American and and all these interesting um uh you know asterisks to put beside it. Do you have any sense as to why that is the case and, and why that has happened?
1: Well. Before I accept the premise and give a hypothesis, I got to say just one quick word about the individual itself, right? The the meaning of the word individual means um, not dividable. Um, But from my understanding, the, the arrival of this term in the history of ideas really came to be with Hobbes, who in a sense, invented the individual. He invented this idea of something that can't really be divided anymore because he was trying to deal with the real problem in his time of civil war and the theoretical problem that uh, without giving the individual some basic integrity, we're just going to kill each other. So I agree or disagree with Hobbes, but like it's worth casting a long view on this question of the individual and just realizing that for most of human history, there hasn't been an individual in the way that we've constructed it. So uh, I, it wouldn't surprise me if the individual is in decline. Uh, it, it may not have the same uh, Lindy attributes uh, <laughs> that, that that we should expect, let's say from the from things like tribe or uh, caste or what have you. Um, you know, as to is the individual in decline, I'm not quite sure about that. I, I think that... Um, if you sort of take a dialectical view though of, of history and culture, you'll see that there's always a backlash against whatever's culturally ascended in a generation earlier. So I can you know I can see um, the rise of individualism leading to atomization, leading to uh, alienation. And then the question is what's going to fill that gap? Um, one p- hypothesis proposed by Baudrillard, is that consumerism is going to fill that gap? Uh, consumerism in the sense of like you are what you buy, and now social media helps you really um, brand yourself and identify with brands and create a pseudo community around that. Um, so is that <laughs> that that's a bit of a horseshoe, right? With the the individual shopping at Urban Outfitters to express individualism, and then broadcasting that out to thousands of other people who also share that same so-called individualist aesthetic. Uh, and then there's, you know, I think there's new age religion, and but be it in the form of yoga, be it in the form of uh, of sort of the the cult of masculinity on the new right. Um, there's a great book by Tara Burden kind of on this called Strange Rites. She was uh, on my podcast, uh, Meditations with Zohar recently. So I, I see it as in a sense, individualism and tribalism are in dialectical relationship with one another. They're not really opposites. Bad tribalism leads to individualism. Bad indi- individualism leads back to tribalism.
0: Gotcha. So it's, it's something like this kind of cycle through history where we, we cycle between these two things. And, you know, right now, perhaps we're. You know, fairly atomized, or you know, it, it feels like people are quite lonely, and and then, but perhaps we'll find some way back to community. Or in yeah, the, you know, in the it's future.
1: interesting. Um, the 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 word loneliness. So, Arendt, Han Arendt, in um, you ma- many of many places, she identifies loneliness with fascism and totalitarianism, which is kind of fascinating because you would think. That at least, like in a totalitarian society, the one thing it answers is the the problem of loneliness. Right? You you can join a a mass uh, movement, you can be part of a march, etc. But she she defines totalitarianism as quote unquote organized loneliness um, because you're never you never fear feel more lonely than when you're surrounded by people requiring conformity of you. So I think good individualism in the sense of a Cold War liberalism <laughs> is um, being able to differentiate yourself from the crowd. But that doesn't mean that you check out of society. I think that's a bastardization of the concept of the individual, that somehow like you're free on your boat and and you don't have a care in the world. I mean, you're always going to be a social animal. It's just a question of how conformist are you? And unfortunately or fortunately, we, we, we do um, seem hardwired for conformity. So maybe not everybody is really as up to the the individual task as is, as, as is good for them. Arendt thought that most people could not participate in what she called an inner dialogue. And she saw that as the root of a lot of modern evil that in a sense, because we couldn't be still with our own thoughts um, as philosophers could be, we would uh, fill our minds with all kinds of uh, propaganda or talking points from the outside. And uh, we'd basically just parrot whatever is uh, going on around us.
0: And just kind of copy the crowd and then, you know, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, kill the scapegoat and these things keep going. Um, what you just said reminded me of, of this really interesting question I had for you. Uh, liberalism, you know, this kind of Cold War li- liberalism we seem to be at the end of or something like that. Um, you know, people seem to be fed up with it. They think it's not working at some level, you know, neoliberal seem, seem this, this like a kind of a, uh, bad term to call someone. Uh, but, but what my, my big question is what comes next? Do you have any visions of the future that, you know, are solid alternatives to liberalism that seem preferable and are actually achievable? A lot of it has to
1: do with how you define liberalism. Um, I'm mostly of the view that a lot of people who are unhappy with liberalism are unhappy with one version of it, but they're not really unhappy with liberalism itself. Um, Practically speaking, I think in other words, practically speaking, liberalism has on the whole increased uh, many, it's secured many basic civil rights. It's given us a lot of prosperity. Okay, sure. We're we're still unhappy because that's the human condition. (laughs) And uh, also liberalism is young but even to be able to criticize liberalism on your substack is uh, is a confirmation of liberalism it's like a cheap shot of a point right but you're exercising your freedom of speech so on a metaphysical level i get why people would would be unhappy with liberalism i mean one could have a thousand objections i think it, metaphysically it's rather thin on what basis do you really justify it i think the the more the most compelling arguments for liberalism are instrumental it's like well, we live in a diverse society, and we'd like to get along. Look at the history of Europe when we fought over religion; that didn't—that wasn't so fun. So, you know, when I hear people saying, "What comes after liberalism?" We need, you know, we need to return to uh, a theocracy, or if, if you will, um, it sort of is one proposal from the Christian uh, Christian post liberals, or if it's like um, post liberal from sort of more the economic left. In the form of, like, we need to be more aggressively redistributionist or whatever it is. Um, I think it behooves us to remember the origins of liberalism were technological. There was social technology for managing diversity. And all those proposals amount to, in my years, is something to the effect of, like, liberalism doesn't deliver justice, it doesn't deliver truth. And I think a, a conscientious liberal would have to agree that that's true. But that's that's not the point of liberalism. Liberalism is kind of saying we would rather have peace or um, some relative peace than you know fighting in the streets. Can we be more aspirational? Can we reform certain things? Absolutely. That's what liberalism is all about. It's about making things better from within. The revolutionary mindset that opposes liberalism is just making the it's basically just anti status quoism. But I again, I don't know how much of it is really based in a deep thought versus just um, a personalized cost-benefit analysis of like, is this good for me and mine <laughs> or not? Um, you know, Fukuyama thought that liberalism decisively won the history of ideas, and that doesn't mean that every society will be liberal or that liberal societies, once uh, they become liberal, will remain liberal. That's not really the point. The point is just that, on the whole, liberal democracies have uh, come into prominence, and uh, um, that sort of secular trend indicates that the, it's likely to continue. Um, it doesn't mean that, in a particular case, it's not fragile. And I, I kind of agree with Fukuyama. So, for me personally, I don't, it's hard to imagine. alternative to liberalism taking off and becoming the new orthodoxy but that doesn't mean you're not going to have various experiments and we do um experiments in in post-liberalism but uh you know to to riff on tyler cowan on this point like if you look at the revealed preferences of the global population where are people moving (laughs) right (laughs) and where are they leaving they're moving to liberal societies and they're leaving illiberal ones on the whole so it's not to say uh Uh, you know, some people in the Taliban uh, would would rather stay in Afghanistan, that's fine for them. But it's just to say on the whole, like, the tide doesn't seem to be that uh... (laughs) for all for all the people complain about America, they're not they're not actually moving to Russia and Afghanistan.
0: Right. So perhaps, um, perhaps uh, the revealed preferences, you know, liberalism you know actually works you know decently well it's got holes of course but it's about as good as we can do as flawed people liberalism
1: is not equally good for everyone for sure so i think that the criticisms of liberalism are really uh you know they're imported as as psalms of lament as voices of protest and and we should definitely open our hearts to um to the to those laments but again um liberalism is kind of about what's good for the whole. And uh, there's always going to be winners and losers in any political arrangement. That's what politics is. And uh, yeah, I think probably certain orthodox liberals are too dogmatic about the consensus that they think uh, they have when in fact we're much more diverse than we are. So that's what we're seeing now is the internet, and uh the decentralization of media giving people a voice who otherwise wouldn't be able to vocalize their protest but that those pro- voices of protest have always been around
0: it makes sense it makes sense uh, it's some, something that just kind of continues um th- this question is related um you know it feels like we live in this world where there's, there's just a ton of anxiety depression you know people don't feel very well at some level um Do you think we live at a time with an abnormal level of these things? And if Mm. so, like, you know, is there anything we can do about it?
1: I don't have data to back me up on this. So anything I said should definitely be taken as just uh, oracular rather than uh, truthy. (laughs) But um, I think we probably in the West have more anxiety and depression than uh, I can't say than we did have uh, in previous eras in the West, but I kind of feel like they are I'm, I'm willing to hypothesize that they're first world problems. <laughs> if you're starving, you can't really, you, you might be depressed about the fact that you're starving, but your survival instinct might also take over such that you don't have the bandwidth to worry <laughs> about um what life is all about because you're too busy feeding yourself. So I mean, not not that that's an antidote uh to depression. Don't try this at home. Don't <laughs> right, try exactly. Um, you know, but I I think that um certainly anxiety seems to be a first-world problem born of in, in at least one instance uh hyper competitive cultures um that that would be one point. A second is just anxiety about the future like um which could correspond to actual, uh, actual uh, deceleration and growth, or you know, um, the fact that, or simply the fact that society is changing so quickly. It's it's hard really to plan. It's hard to be a definite optimist. Um, you know, if if you grew up in a in a world where you can work one job for fifty years, okay, that has a certain unfreedom to it, but there's also a certain security to it. If you're like the norm is that every couple of years you're going to have to change jobs. So I've, I think that would be anxiety inducing for sure. Um, so I think some of it is social for sure. Um, and some of it uh, and some of it is um, an economic and some of it is, um, I think a, a symptom of a general malaise, a lostness about purpose because to go back to the dis- dissatisfaction with liberalism, like, uh, capitalism gives people the ability to self-define what they're striving for, what, what they want to do with their money. But a lot of people in my view and experience don't actually know what it is that they ought to strive for. And so if money become money, which is a means to an end becomes an end in itself, as Marx describes, mammon becomes God. I think that that definitely will lead to uh, Tremendous depression and anxiety, which is why you see so many people of means uh, quite depressed. Because if you don't know what you're trying to do with those means, well, then you're going to feel aimless.
0: You're you're a religious leader, and so. I'm curious, how do you think about guiding people through these issues of you know how, how to figure out what to shoot for? You know, what is good and, and what, what they should try to do with their lives. Because I'm assuming that that has to come up, right? People come to you with this question. Um, I don't know. I'm a very reluctant guide. <laughs> <laughs> guide. Um I I I try
1: really to customize my responses based upon what people are going through and mirror back to them, the things they know, rather than sort of say like, here's the menu, um, choose option A, B or C. Um, and uh, in, in that sense, I'm a symptom of my time. Like I am, I, I, do ha- I do have some thoughts about like what a good life involves, but I just don't think it's effective. <laughs> <laughs> to, to come top down and be like, you know, this, this is what the Lord requires. I'm, I'm right. more into like the existentialist hero's journey as the uh, method. And, and, you know, if, if the person's begging me to, to give, to give them, uh, some thoughts on, you know, what to, what to aim for, I'm, I'm happy to oblige, but I definitely don't want to start that way. If that makes any sense.
0: No, that, that makes sense. And, and trying to be effective <laughs> is, is important in this, in this case. Um, well, I, I'm curious, you know, maybe it's difficult to give to those people, but like just in the theoretical, you know, what do you think that looks like? What should we try to do? What should we try to shoot for?
1: Um. Well, on a psychological level, I think that having a sense of gratitude is incredibly important. I mean, mo- most of what I'm going to say is going to be super banal and the kinds of things that you can read in any self-help book. But like <laughs> – um the more that you can appreciate your life the more that you can be present in the moment uh things that you know mindfulness describes the not only w- will you feel better but i think you will also you will also perform better for others like you will you will uplift the environment in my view i certainly don't think it's enough to just feel grateful and there are times when uh when this a situation calls not for gratitude but for a negative emotion like anger or whatever that being said um i think just having a much more of a baseline of tranquility and serenity to the extent that that's in your control obviously emotion is complicated that's a good starting point um and you know traditional prayer is all about that traditional i begin my day every morning by saying uh Anani the Hebrew prayer for uh, thank you God for giving me a soul for allowing me to start this this day with new life so does it have to be framed theistically no it doesn't um but I think gratitude that you exist at all or like rem- awe and humility at the fact that you're here that you have one life to live it's just your life what are you gonna do with it make the most of it how are you gonna make the most of it today okay you have a routine you have a lot of things that uh you're required to do. Not all of it is fun. Can you make time for some moments in your day to remember that you have a soul? (laughs) And I guess if you don't believe in a soul, you know that you have, uh, that you have agency, if you will. I think maybe agency is a good secular word for soul. Some, something in you that's distinct, something in you that, that if you did not, if you did not do that, no one would, um, the one song that you can sing that no one else can sing. Um, I think, yeah, in that sense, um, cultivating character is something that I feel is underrated in our society. We are so quick to point to what's wrong with the outside world um, and why it's responsible for our problems. I'm not saying pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I'm not saying like gratitude uh, solves any of these real problems. I just think that we definitely do have more agency at the margin than we think. So that's, <laughs> that's all I'm offering there. Um, I think uh, if you can cultivate, you know, a handful of very meaningful relationships and invest deeply in them, that's certainly better than like being a social butterfly <laughs> and just living your life as a so-called networker. Um <laughs> networking is fine it's fun it's good for the you know it's good but commitment is definitely underrated in our generation uh both at the level of friendships at the level of career at the level of uh romance um i mean really at every level like so commit a little bit more i'm not going to tell you what to commit to i just think in general commitment is good um i mean i could go i could go on and on but like um trying to think what other what other general advice would I give you have to have a full cup in order to uh, be able to give so figure out how to fill up your cup and then be generous the goal the goal is to get to a point where you are a giver rather than a taker and it takes time to get there and obviously we all have moments where we need to ask for help it's not like you just accomplish uh, be you know, you've finished, finished. I don't need anything now I can give obviously, but I think moving from a taker mindset to a giver mindset is the highest way to be. And, uh, it's how many of the saints and the heroes in, in, uh, in our imagination live, they live for the sake of others. They, to, 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 to be, uh, <laughs> to be cliched about it, you know, the, 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 um, what do you call it? The, um, <laughs> the caricature of the, uh, of the venture capitalist with the, with the Patagonia vest, uh, is the, the first words out of their mouth are, how can I help? <laughs> or, how can I be helpful? You know, I, 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 I think if you can actually live that way genuinely, uh, genuinely, that is a tremendous, way to live that will be that will not only bring you meaning but bring others meaning and obviously if you have a sense of a higher consciousness be it god or whatever that does help with that because then you know in every moment that you're here to to serve to serve the creator but even without that i think so many so much of the form of religion can still translate in a secular context
0: Makes sense. There's a lot of good advice there. You did mention one thing, um, which I think is, is actually under discussed, but I think super, super useful. It's, uh, you know, try and do something, something along the lines of, you'll have to correct me, uh, something along, along the lines of that you should try to do something that if you don't do it, it won't happen. Um, try and do something unique. Um, do you think that's important? Uh, and I, I found in my life that that's where I get a lot of meaning is when I do something that that meets that criteria, right? It's not like I'm just some, doing something replaceable, something competitive where someone could come in and do you know essentially the same job, maybe slightly worse, but um, it would still happen anyway.
1: It's a tremendous privilege and blessing to be able to self-express and um, not everyone gets to do it for work, but whether you can do it for work or not, you can definitely carve out some time in your day or your week to do it. And you should—you uh, should know yourself, as Socrates uh, tells us. And you can't really know yourself just by looking in the mirror or meditating. In in my view, you you have to know yourself by taking action and experimenting and getting feedback from the world. And that could come in the form of producing art it could come in the pr- form of starting a company it could really any taking any chance putting yourself out there taking more risk exposing yourself to serendipity it's so good it's so nourishing it's scary for sure but um and uh yeah i don't i don't think everybody is cut out to do this all the time we all have kind of different risk tolerances and some of us are just kind of happier when we're out putting ourselves out there and some of us are a little more shy or you know um you know maybe more analytical and so we want to know how things work rather than sort of this potentially ego ego maniacal view that I'm <laughs> offering which is like well what do I have to say it's like no you know um I'm happy just to be a helper i that's fine uh, I'm not. I'm not saying my personality type is the best. I just think that uh, within any personality type, there's probably definitely room for doing something singular. And in a Jewish context, I'd say like God created human beings in the divine image. The biblical context uh, in Genesis, and uh, much as much ink has been spilled on what that even means that we're created in the divine image. Um, personally, I think it means that God is a creator, and so the human being is created to be a creator um god did something that nobody else did or could do and god created one being that also has that ability and that obligation that responsibility to do something that none other can do
0: i love that That that's really good I, that that's just a it, it's a really good uh a framing of you know of people and and just just think about you know this the singularity of the individual right like each person is is, is truly someone singular and, and special and that, that that's something that comes up a lot in, in the rationalist community that I, I like to think about is like well um, you know I, I think something that's under addressed is just how each person is, is totally unique and um, special and how we should we should lift that up in some some extent and, and just the specialness of, of people and um, how do we cultivate each individual it seems like an important thing thing to strive to do.
1: What is what do you think the rationalist community's take on that issue is? Um, why and why, why is it sort of underdeveloped in your view?
0: Ah, uh, it, it's super interesting. I, I think it comes from. Have you read much about effective altruism, like utilitarianism? Yeah. yeah sure. it, well, I I think that can you know unintentionally sometimes smash down the individual into you know everybody. It's just like we're all just bundles of utility, and how do we maximize that? And you know, I I think the effective altruism movement is very important in the sense that you should try to do charity that is more effective like on the margin you know like we we can do one thing that serves 22 people and one that can do 20 and, and all everything's equal of course we should do the one that that helps more people um but i think when you start trying to calculate things out to a more granular level than that um you run into a lot of problems and and it feels like a lot of the bad things in the 20th century You know came from these things where you just smash the individual down and you know fascism and communism and just these kind of totalizing um you know sense of community where we're all going to just get jammed together and and everyone's the same i don't know i don't know i don't have well-developed thoughts on that but that's generally generally what i think
1: yeah i think it's definitely a a tension um that any philosopher political philosopher is going to face because between the system and the individual because if you uh, if you just focus on the individual, you can obviously you can have a lot of inefficiency and a lack of accountability. You end up you potentially end up celebrating some individuals more than others. Um, and so I, I definitely see utilitarianism and other philosophical movements as a rebellion against that as sort of an, a, an attempt to say we're all the same because they don't like the they don't like the idea of like uh, why should this person get all, all the glory and everybody else be serfs, right? Um.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a real tension. I, I, I'm curious your take on this and, you know, I don't have fully formed thought on this question, but um, I think it could be interesting. You know, generally what is your take on hierarchy? What, what is the kind of, you know, what's your reading of the Jewish take on, on hierarchy um you know we live in an age that seems to really it's weird some in some ways praise hierarchy in some ways be very against any any kind of hierarchy in the world um it's this weird like tension which i I can't quite get a grip on um so it's kind of a vague question but but i don't know if you have any thoughts there Mm
1: -hmm. I i do have a lot of thoughts on it um i think hierarchy is inevitable and uh I guess to the extent that it's inevitable, it's a kind of law of both nature and human organization. It's good. Uh, or at, at minimum, it's neutral. You can have terrible hierarchies. You can have abuse and corruption within hierarchies. But that critique is more about um, who ought to be in power <laughs> right. rather than it is about process. Uh, or no, actually... You can even have hierarchies that have good or bad processes. It's it's, but um, so I think hi- hierarchy as a term needs to be disambiguated. But um, but let's just go back to the Bible for a second. Like one of the core stories of the Hebrew Bible is the liberation of the Israelite slaves from Egypt. Now, um, it's bad that one people is enslaving another. That is clearly terrible. Um. In my view, the Bible connects that political reality, that social reality, to a theological reality. That theological reality is that all of the Egyptians worship their leader as God. So, it follows from that, it follows from the despotism of Pharaoh, that you're going to have a society arranged in a dehumanizing way. If the point of monotheism, if the point of the Bible is that only God is God, no human being can claim to be God, there is a fundamental egalitarianism in that fundamental resistance to despotism in that. Um, but that doesn't mean that when the Israelites leave Egypt, that they have a flat organization <laughs> and uh, everybody has equal share uh, in the decision-making process. There's still a prophet Moses who top down gives orders and uh, there's a court system with higher and lower court and so on and so forth. Um, and of course, at the top of that hierarchy is God. So <laughs> at least in a biblical context, it's not that we're anti-hierarchy, it's that there's good and bad hierarchies. Um, here's, the, here's the rub. If everybody is created in the divine image, then certain, certain uh, rights and certain obligations follow from that insight. And those are radical. We can reasonably disagree about what those are. But from that point of view, there is no hierarchy. No one person can claim to be better than another person. No one race can claim to be better than another race. God created all human beings as individuals equal to one another in dignity, if you will, um, in soulfulness. Plato, uh, on the face of it, does not share this view. He thinks there are golden souls, silver souls, copper souls, bronze souls, Um, (laughs) you know, the Israelite people are chosen for a specific mission. Uh, there is certainly within Jewish theology, a tendency to supremacism or what do you call it? Chauvinism to say, you know, the Jews are a better people than, uh, than other peoples. But even within that view, I think, uh, it's not really a hierarchical view based in essence. It's a view based in, um, um, being chosen for something as opposed to being born this way. So even that is kind of radical, that what would make you better than someone, if you will, if you want to put it in that unpolitically correct way, is what you do, not what you're born into. Uh, that makes sense. And you can't inherit greatness. You have to become great. Uh, a, a person, the child of a, of a hero can can squander that, lineage and a nobody can rise in status. I think that that follows from the idea of the individual being created in the divine image, as opposed to a caste system where you say, well, this priestly class are the descendants of the, of the gods. And these, uh, these lower classes descend from, you know, from Right. So, so I'm absolutely against metaphysical hierarchy when it comes to, Uh, comparing human beings to one another, and I think a lot of evil does, and megalomania does come from the temptation to say, like, this person is a better person than that person at the level of essence. But obviously, some people do good things, great things, and some people don't. And we should absolutely esteem and value those who exercise all kinds of heroism, including moral heroism, over those who Uh, who squander it. Um, Certainly we need to take into account that um, everybody has unique trials and tribulations. And so it's always apples to oranges when you're comparing people, but I definitely am against the idea that we shouldn't have competition or we shouldn't afford uh, unequal outcomes, (laughs) Uh, you know, to, to people who get the glory versus people who get less glory. It's just the the theological point about everyone being created in the divine image is that we're not assi- we're not attaching people's ultimate worth to any of that. The fact that somebody can run the fastest mile in the universe doesn't make them like inherently better than the person who walks it in the slowest right <laughs> in the slowest way. And um, I think too often the the both extremes are wrong in the hierarchy debate. Like the ones who are like, yeah, you won, amazing, that's what it's all about. No. What it's all about is using your talent to serve. <laughs> Not about like gloating about how great you are. That's pharaohism. But um, just because you're a loser in a particular race, you know, doesn't mean you have to be a sore loser. Loser. Connect connect to your own uniqueness, connect to your own glory. Find a different race to run, and then it it won't bother you as much uh, that that you got bested.
0: It makes a lot. Of, it, it makes a lot of sense, and I'm always reminded. I've I've been reading this biography of of Julius Caesar, and he walks by a statue of Alexander the Great, and he's just like really torn up by the fact that you know he's like 30 and he's not done anything near as uh, as great as alexander had done by the time he was 30 you know and so th- in some sense these things just must never end right you know it doesn't it doesn't matter you know how good you are there's always gonna be someone who's you know slightly better or done something better than you and so you should yeah. you should go back to kind of your individual glory i think and-
1: i think at the level of character one should be in competition with oneself That sort kind of connects back to what, also what advice would i give is like yeah ignore the praise and ignore the blame or don't 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 let the praise and the blame get to you too much. Obviously, it does. It forms you, but get to a point where you're not relying upon it. Um,
0: just use it. If just a feedback. person
1: says, "Wow, that's so smart," you know, maybe it is so smart relative to them, but relative to where you ought to be, it's actually not very smart. So, right. exactly. you not 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 all praise is equal. Right. Exactly.
0: Exactly. I love that. Um, that, that's really good well well zohar that just spurned a question in my mind and it's, it's a very large question and we're on like you know a one-hour podcast so it, it may not be be possible to really answer this at all but maybe you thought about it uh you know do you have a sense on on what we're of what we're here to do you know as, as individuals as, as a community you know it could be any of these um but but yeah and and that's a very very large question but i don't know if you have any thoughts on it
1: if you uh if you take sort of a macro view of this individual question, um, we all have a lot in common with one another by virtue of being born in the 20th century. In a sense, we if you think of time or era as a kind of country, we are na- we are all nationals <laughs> right. of modernity. Modernity is a country or post-modernity. Um and I think that what we're here to do has something to do with that, because one of the calling, one of one of the um, m- slogans of modernity from Ezra Pound is "Make it new." There's really an emphasis, I think, on invention and innovation in modernity, um, and corollary to that, in post-modernity, there's a, a sense of despair at, uh, as to whether we can e- e- we can make anything new anymore. That's the the decadence thesis of you know Ross and and to some extent Tyler Cowan's Great stagnation thesis—the sense of like, well, all the greatness is behind us now. What can we do? Um, what are we here to do? I think we are here to reckon with the fact that we are modern or postmodern, and that we have more opportunities and more challenges than our ancient forebears. So, um, we should—I'm um, not going to say we should strive for progress, but I think we should—we should strive to appreciate. Um, this is how I put it theologically. We should strive to appreciate why did God put us in this historical moment and not in a previous one? You know, God gave us good dental care and uh, Uber Eats <laughs> so that we could use it for something. Right. Uh, I'm sorry if that sounded glib. Uh, no, that good. you okay. know, good. Um, we are having, we, you and I are having a much higher quality of life than a king in Europe, who lived in the 16th century? So, what will we do with that? And um, at the same time, like there's more, you know, mass death than ever. <laughs> uh, there's more complex ways that power can be wielded to oppress. So, what are we doing about that? So, I think it's it's sort of the the perennial questions resurface and then they have a, a unique tint colored by history and culture. And then that's the paradox is sort of how does the historical and the eternal interrelate? But that, that's what I would say. We're, we're, we're here to figure out or to be, um, uh, uh, Deschardin, I think tell our he said, uh, we're, we're, um, we're not human beings on a spiritual journey. We're spiritual beings on a human journey. So I would riff on that and say like, we are eternal beings on a historical journey.
0: I like that. I, I like that. I think that's that, that's really good. I, I really like that. Um, I am curious. You know, I have asked a couple people this, and I I'd love to get your take. And, and you just brought this up. You know, to you, what's the distinction between you know the pre-modern, the modern, and the post-modern? Is it does it have to do with newness? Is is it something else? Um, pre-modern, modern, and
1: post-modern. Yeah, I think. Uh, You can tell the story at the level of technology, at the level of culture, or at the level of ideas, and they all interrelate for sure. Um, I think the pre-modern – in one telling, there's basically just before the Industrial Revolution and after the the Industrial (laughs) Revolution. That's like kind of the easiest way to do it. Um, cause for the, uh, you know, the average person doesn't really care if Galileo or Newton have a new view of the universe, <laughs> right. like right. that's just fake news, you know, yeah, exactly. uh, they're, they're, they're not listening. That's it, right? um, what so, but, but obviously, um, the consequences of the scientific revolution are profound, um, not just for scientists, but for everyone. So I, I think that, uh, maybe I describe the pre-modern era as one in which there's a certain order and, and naive elegance to the world. The modern is sort of one of inverting that. Um, In particular, I think of Nietzsche as anti metaphysical as Nietzsche is sort of saying, it's all perspective. Um, And in a sense, and modernity really throwing everything on its head, right? You take, take Marx as another example, Marx, uh, takes the concept of God and, and says, it's just a projection of society. It's just, it's just to cope. Um, You have basically Freud doing that with every, with every myth that the individual tells itself, that's just your, you know, that's just your uh, Oedipus complex or whatever it is. So I think, you know, moderns kind of, they, they reject, they invert, they, they rebel in the name of doing something new. The, the the French revolutionaries as Walter Benjamin describes them were shooting at the clock towers because they sought revenge not just against the uh, the regime, the political regime but against time itself against the way that time was organized the mechanical wow. clock that's awesome <laughs> I think postmodernity is in a sense a uh, scaling back of that hubris, a realization that in fact we can't achieve as much as we think when we just invert and rebel um, and subvert and transgress uh, that we end up being just as dogmatic and uh, limited also as that which we're rejecting. Um, I think postmodernism is is less certain of itself than modernism. or Modernity is just like, yeah, we've got the truth. This was bad. We have the truth. And postmodernity is more like a we don't know we don't know um, it's complicated so <laughs> and and it's also a bit of a, a mixing and a matching you know take some things from here take some things from there i think you ha- you had that in modernity too modernity as modern aesthetics were all about pastiche um, ts elliot you know is a good example of that the wasteland is like a poem composed of like lots of random quotations mixing like uh things he heard on the streets with dante um, but i think postmodernity takes it to like a wild extreme because in modernity there's still kind of a canon that you're grappling with and it's sort of this imposing like sort of authoritarian father figure and postmodernity is it's so it's sort of both indifferent and liberated from that <laughs> indifferent to and liberated from that that gravitas it's more like uh uh nothing means anything anymore so you just sort of do your own aesthetic. I think that's kind of how, how I describe post-modernity um, aesthetically. But I think that, uh, yeah, just generally maybe um, modernism was skeptical of centralized power. Like it was skeptical of the king, but it wasn't skeptical of power. And post-modernity is just skeptical. And generally uh, skeptical. that skeptical that general skepticism, in my view, can lead to some interesting counterintuitive places because skepticism is always a double-edged sword. It can weirdly lead to a, a doubling down on or a return to pre-modernity. So, for instance, if you say that like we can't know anything. One response to that conundrum is to say, "Well, we might as well just go with this, since you can't disprove it." So, like Bertrand Russell, who's more a modernist, is gonna be like, "Look at these believers; they're so ridiculous." You know, i i I could just as well, I could just as well believe in like tiny teapots orbiting the Earth as I could believe in a god. (laughs) And postmodernisms are like, "Yeah, but um, since it's all absurd, you might as well go to mass." (laughs) <laughs> right, you know what I mean? So they're not going to argue that you ought to go to mass from first principles, but they'll sort of argue for it from the fact that you can never prove that they're wrong.
0: That's good. That's good. And a weird place to find ourselves. I must say. Yeah. I think post-modernity,
1: right. Um, there was a guy, Bruno Latour. He wrote a book called, we have never been modern. He's, um, he was like a big, Uh, environmentalist, but his views, his theories are quite postmodern. And so he, there was a New York Times article about him some years ago, as he sort of realized that his own skepticism about science was being used by climate change deniers. (laughs) And he was sort of both horrified and, as I recall, like, yeah, I guess I did allow for this. (laughs) So I think that's post-modernity is just living in a in the, in the a place of uh, a complete disalignment of narratives where uh, no single organization can claim that it has the answers whereas modernity was like this is cancelled but we have the new dogma we have the new orthodoxy and now post is like everyone's cancelled at least um, <laughs> at least when it isn't my team but then somebody else right. just cancels them
0: so yep <laughs> <laughs> that's the way that goes well I'm um, you know, speaking of of, of canceling, I I don't want to get in the weeds of this, but, you know, with the current, you know, do you see the current culture war kind of subsiding, like going back, you know, we've got polarization that's at the level that was, you know, pre-Civil War, so it's pretty high, you know, like really high. Uh, It it has been higher before, but it's quite high. Um, Do you think this is like just downstream of like slower growth or something like that and it's just kind of a mechanical problem or is it like something in the water people just you know they, they want to have something to fight over do you have any like meta level thoughts about that
1: yeah i don't know if we're more polarized than than you know uh it's it's hard to here I, I do have thoughts i think i um i think a lot of it has to do with media um in general i think for like facebook poisoned our minds. I, I don't mean in the 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 normal way that people talk about it in terms of misinformation. Um I I just mean there's something really bad for people who spend like hours of their day scrolling through social media and posting like whatever their hottest take is on anything <laughs> um and getting into stupid fights with like people that they, you know, with uh, with strangers, but even more just disheartening with friends and uh, and teachers and, and family yeah. members publicly, it's like utterly disgraceful. So, I think that as much as social media has done a lot of positives, um, and I, I'm, you know, full disclosure, I enjoy using Twitter quite a bit, but I did delete my Facebook um, <laughs> some years ago. Uh, I think that that media has empowered our worst habits uh, in a, in a click and that they um, there's like a sort of a new norm that a lot of people have to engage with everything all the time. And there's a never ending source of things to, to generate outrage. And so it's not that people weren't divided on hot button issues in every generation. It's just that now the thing that you first think about when you see that person at a party Is what they posted (laughs) instead of like meeting them with genuine curiosity and getting to know a side of them that would lead to connectivity and empathy. You're automatically putting them in some kind of box as to what, you know, what their values are. Um, In a sense, we've all become walking algorithms. I think that's terrible.
0: It's just super legible like you just know like and and, and that's all you identify with because it's very very vivid you know it's super compelling you know what i mean like zohar believes x you know and this is all i can think about i mean there's sort of much much ado
1: is made about identity politics but less ado is made of what i would call pol- politi- politics as identity um <laughs> and right. i think that's in a sense the root of identity politics is the Forget the group we're talking about. Just the general cultural trend to um, identify as having certain views on politics, being the primary way that you want people to interact with you, or that you interact with other people. And it's hard to know if that's because uh, you know what what's causing that. But I I wonder if that's if that's been the case before. I think in in um, in religion, I do see that a tide changing. I think a generation earlier, people might have ha- what they might have had in common was living in the same neighborhood, coming together for happy times and sad times. And now, what they have in common is whatever activist thing that they care about went on right. either side of the the aisle. And if you don't share that, then you're not welcome in the community. Like you, you sort of. And what's strange is like, so in the liberal in liberal religion, it's it's sort of. Um, the activism is uh, it replaces the traditional creed. <laughs> uh, but in in more Orthodox uh, or, I guess, uh, pre-liberal religion, if you will, <laughs> <laughs> you have the same phenomenon. Like You would think that uh, that more culturally conservative religious people, in my estimation, would be focused on religion rather than politics. Um, but in fact, I think everybody has been captured by the p- politicization of religion. And so that does beg the question of, well, what is religion? What is its relationship to politics? I don't want to like create too simplistic a picture um, as if it's religion and politics have nothing to do with one another. But like... To put it very bluntly, we're all Spinozists now <laughs> because Spinoza uh, defined religion as downstream of society. He, def- he basically says, you know, re- religion is just a tool for getting people to organize and uh, it has no inherent tr- truth to it. Um, it's, it's just uh, it, the laws are just there to, to, to bind you to one another. And I kind of feel like everybody has accepted that on some level.
0: And <laughs> like it's just a community. For for me, that's
1: sad. For me, that's sad. Um, I'm not saying we should strive for apolitical spirituality, but I think we've definitely tilted too much towards the political. To the in a in a society that's already doing that. So like, if religion's supposed to be countercultural or interesting, what is it doing? that you can't just get from being on facebook if it's basically just another venue for for politicization so that right. that would be my critique
0: absolutely no and i it, it, well i i have the strong belief you know it should be above politics right i mean it, it's some very basic level but instead it's just like gets all intertwined with it now and you know perhaps that's just revealed preference of what people want nowadays but it's it's not not very good it seems like
1: i don't think it's i don't think it's above politics but i don't think that um it's reducible to politics. Politics is inescapable. Politics, poli- we're political animals, as Aristotle says, and people are going to be happy or unhappy in any given room with who's holding the power. So, like, that's not going away. Right. But um, I think if prayer, for instance, is about um, connecting to higher consciousness, that's very different than like, um prayer as a script for simply stating what uh what you care about and i i don't i think um maybe we've we've humanized religion too much we've sanitized it too much and it's become only about human values when in fact if the the point of religion is to get us to see beyond the limitations of the short-time horizon and prejudices of our given cultural moment then you know we need to bring that that sense of mystery and awe back i don't think you're i don't associate mystery and awe with activism personally some some might pull it off you know you dr king pulled it off but on the whole i i don't i think of uh i think of activism mostly as uh imbued with a sense of certainty and confidence and there's a time for that but religion can't just be about that
0: definitely i i think that's that's really well put um well with the last couple of minutes I, i'd love to run through a quick round of overrated or underrated you down <laughs> sure all right so i'll throw out a term just tell me whether or not it's overrated or underrated maybe a sentence or two why um overrated or underrated hegel I think Hegel
1: is underrated because he writes pretty badly, <laughs> yes. um, but he's sort of overrated in the sense that a lot of his ideas are already mainstream, um, even if people aren't reading him. The one, the one thing from Hegel that I really do think is underrated is the master-slave struggle, um, the struggle for recognition. Uh, it just never gets old. It's the, the the fundamental point of it is just how being the underdog is the source of creativity and ambition. and moves history along. and being the one who's achieved the high status is actually a kind of complacency or death. So I think that is a really fascinating angle on uh, both history and also on personal psychology.
0: It's good. Uh, Rawls overrated or underrated?
1: Um, I think he's probably overrated by most people who know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, uh, as to why that is the case, I mean, um, Rawls was a systematic thinker, um, one of the last, but his ideas haven't really scaled beyond. A very small segment of elites, and so I think if <laughs> for Rawls's project to succeed, he would have to be more persuasive beyond that that segment.
0: Makes sense. Um, one last one. It's uh, and I might pr- mispronounce her name. Is it Jillian Rose? Yeah, only it. Yeah,
1: is Jillian Rose overrated or underrated? um She's underrated primarily because she's un. She's not known or read. Um, I also think um, she's—you know—great thinkers transcend. Uh, they transcend um, whatever views they might have taken on a particular issue. Like Heidegger, for instance, was a right winger, but somebody who's had tremendous influence on the left, uh, and that's a testament. I mean, Hegel would be another example of somebody who's influenced basically everyone across the aisle. I think that Rose. Um, is underread, um, for a lot of reasons. But even though she's working on Adorno primarily, she's not just an Adorno scholar. She's an original thinker, and I think, as such, like people, regardless of their views um, on p- politics, would would benefit a lot from thinking with her. In particular, um, in her book, "Morning Becomes the Law." she describes the project of being post-postmodern uh as taking the um she 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 says that her project is to try to recover truth after it's been destroyed by the holocaust and by postmodernity i think that's just a very compelling idea and she doesn't she's not it's not nostalgic she's not saying we need to go back um To an earlier time. Instead, what she she offers this through the lens of this motif of mourning is she she used the myth of Phocion, who was exiled from the polis, from the city. His wife, after um, Phocion died, ate his ashes and then walked back into the city and brought the brought his presence back into the city by swallowing his ashes. So she used that as a core metaphor for the Philosopher's Project to sign up, in a sense, swallow the ashes of reason <laughs> that that came from reason being canceled uh, after people were so disappointed with the 20th century. I find that very meaningful. It's that's kind really of uh, it's harrowing, but I think <laughs> yeah. um, it's a poetic image and it's also, we need more thinkers who, who think creatively about um, how to balance head and heart. And she's definitely someone who does that.
0: That's really good, that's really good. Um, Well, Zohar, thank you so so much for taking the time to come on today. I I really appreciated the conversation. Um, Where can people find your work? Where should we send them? Thank you,
1: Will. This is great. Um, So I have a podcast uh, called Meditations with Zohar. You can find it in all the places. Highly recommended. (laughs) Thank you. And uh, I write two substacks. Uh, One is a philosophy newsletter. It's called What is Called Thinking?, what is called thinking.substack.com, and uh, I do a Bible commentary every week, uh, also at Substack. It's uh, a little harder to spell, but it's uh substack.com. and uh, you can just uh, you can find all of that information on my personal website zoharatkins.com, or just find me on Twitter where I'm active and uh, say hello. Uh, Zohar Atkins is my my handle.
0: Perfect. We'll put the uh, put the links down there in the show notes. Appreciate it. Well, thanks so much. This was great. Thank you. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at DonovanDorrance.com.